Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast. My name is Joe. I own Cobra Frame Building, and I do this podcast series. I interview frame builders, and I try to help them tell their story about how they got into and interested in frame building. We also build and sell the tools and some of the frame components that frame builders would need to make these beautiful bicycles that we all love. And I do some YouTube videos and some other things. Um, so this week, my guest is Corey Krichkowski in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and he's been building some really cool bikes and he's got a really interesting story. I wanted to share it with all of you. I'm going to roll the tape right now and quit yapping. Here you go. Um, for me, it kind of starts back in the year of 1993. I was, um, sort of like, I, I hadn't decided to go to university at that point. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I moved out to the Okanagan in British Columbia. At that time, mountain biking wasn't what it is there now, but there were mountain bikers. And I, that was the first bicycle that I bought that I would consider to be sort of a higher end or a nicer bike. And I don't know if you guys get this brand in the States, but the brand is Tech, T-E-C-H. Okay. And it basically, I did a little research on it um, years later, and it's basically like an OEM Nishiki. And it had, it had tanged tubes and, white splatter paint and i you know as years went on i rode that bike quite a bit and um you know it was a rigid fork with canty brakes and of course at that time mountain biking was pretty limited by today's standards and i rode that bike for years and eventually found myself in university um decided that i i wanted to go and pursue a degree in geology so university i remember buying uh again a like to me a pretty nice bike it was a da vinci a canadian make nice and it was, yeah, it had some cool stuff on it. It had V-brakes. It had a, a Judy DH. It had like the OG race face cranks. And um, kind of neat because the owner of Da Vinci, I, I bent the derailleur hanger and I actually just phoned them up. And, and the, you know, he's now the CEO of a major international company. But at that time, he was just a small manufacturer. Yeah. So he accepted the bike back and he uh, had to reheat treat it and actually he tra- treated me really well. Holy cow. I, ha- I had a Da Vinci hardtail from the 90s for a couple of years. It was um, a commuter bike that I bought secondhand, uh, you know, 26 inch mountain bike with XT parts. Somebody had converted to single speed, it had uh, XT V brakes, and it was an awesome, awesome commuter bike. It was a little small for me, but it was such a good, it had a rigid fork, and it was orange, and it was TIG welded aluminum, and I love that bike. It was so cool. I don't know how yeah. that stacks up to yeah. yours, but, uh, Oh, it was pretty much the same thing. It was a mountain bike and I was, um, I had a fork. So in university I was, I was doing, you know, I was mountain biking in the summers and I was ice climbing in the winters and I, you know, where, where the ice climbs are near Calgary there, you have to get through some pretty, oh, pretty rugged terrain and you need a four wheel drive in the winter. And so I bought myself what I thought was like a, a monster truck of a Jeep. It was, it had <laughs> tires and a small lift. And like, to me, it was the biggest four by four I'd ever seen. And I, I used that thing to go ice climbing and 2001 came along and I was, I took a job out of university up in uh, Northern, Northern Alberta in a place called Grand Prairie, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's right near the mountains, mm-hmm. but it's, it's fairly remote. And when I moved up there, I ended up, um, sort of for, for about a decade, I didn't do much bike riding. I didn't, I, you know, I rode on streets and stuff like that and, and the odd trail, but there just wasn't a mountain biking community there. So sort of hung on my bike for a while. And I, 
did different things, backpacking, trail running. But one of the things that happened was I ended up running into some people. It was a fairly small community. It was about 15,000 people at that time. And just because I had this Jeep, I started running into people that had Jeeps, but, but their Jeeps were like monster trucks. I mean, they're real monster trucks, mm-hmm. orange tires and huge motors and stuff like that. And, <clears throat> and I figured out pretty quickly in that area, there weren't a lot of trails, mountain bike trails and so on. So if you wanted to go to the mountains, you kind of needed to have a vehicle like that. Because I had just finished university and I didn't have any money, I realized that I'd have to, you know, start building my own stuff and I'd have to learn how to weld. So, and because there was, it was a smaller community, kind of word got out that there was a guy that had moved up there with a Jeep and wanted to learn how to weld. So I got connected with two people. I got connected with a fellow named Dwayne and, and he was a super nice guy. And he, he came over and he brought me uh, an older, a 220 volt MIG. Mm-hmm. Just dropped off and he said, here, you can have this as long as you want it. I'm not using it and you can learn how to weld. So that was, that was super nice. And, um, I remember trying to use that thing and it was, um, there was really something wrong with it. Like I just, I couldn't get it to weld. I couldn't get, uh, like get a nice bead. And so another person in the community whose name was Dean came over, to give me a hand. Now, Dean was an, an actual welder and I phoned him up and asked him if he could come have a look at it. And he said he would. So he came over and kind of looked at the machine and looked at the settings and then he grabbed a couple pieces of steel I had and, and like flipped his helmet down and, and he laid down the nicest weld I had ever seen. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so he came like, and he was a really awesome guy. He's, he's dead now. He passed the leukemia um, a few years after, like he started mentoring me, but, but he was uh, instrumental in teaching me how to weld at that time. So this is about 2001. And he taught me how to weld and how to run a torch and instrumental. Like, and the guy was a, was a real, he was a real fabricator. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I took those skills and metalworking just sort of became a hobby for me uh, to the point where like I was building tube chassis for fun and, and um, building myself bigger and more extreme off-road vehicles and stuff like that. Yeah. Now in 2000, 2011, um, about a decade passed in that community and I, and I relocated back down to Southern Alberta to Calgary and I reconnected with mountain biking at that time and just got right back into it. I think it was the week I moved back to Calgary. I went down to my old shop, Calgary cycle and bought a bike. And, you know, within a couple of years I was leading their group rides with a good buddy of mine, uh, Rob Gemmel. Mm-hmm. Next four years, it's two times a week. We were doing rides, and it was it was everything from beginner rides to, to to quite advanced rides, and we were doing all all summer and then all winter on our fat bikes. And there was kind of a guiding and a coaching and a mentorship component to it, and it was just a really good time. But it was it was a time when I really because I was seeing so many different meeting so many riders, seeing so many bikes, doing so many trails. It sort of informed like my understanding of mountain biking and and what I would want from a mountain bike, and and a lot of it's local stuff too. So. And everything was going great until 2016. I um, was diagnosed with testicular cancer, oh, no. which is interesting. Yeah, it's kind of inter- interesting time for me because, um, you know, in 2016, I was going to do a little quick math here. Four minus two. I was 42. So I'm, I'm outside of the window of people that should be getting diagnosed with this. And of course, it kind of shot a, like an arrow across the bow of my life and had to deal with this. 
it turned out that um, everything was fine and I got treatment and life moved on. But at that time, two things happened. I, I was kind of faced with my own mortality. So, and really for the fir- first time in a real sense in my life. So what I did was I took a trip to Japan. That was the first thing I did. I, I, in my mind, I was expecting to see all these really nice bikes covered in the latest Shimano components, but it's not like that there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just hundreds of really boring commuter bikes with fenders, and, uh, and that was it. I, I didn't see one bike that I'd, I'd want to own the whole time I was in Japan. So I was, huh. anyways, there for three weeks. <laughs> and, but, but the other thing I did was I always wanted a custom bicycle because as the years had gone on, like, Riding bikes, I had never, never was able to fit a bike properly because I'm, I'm six foot six mm-hmm. and I weigh 250 pounds. So I'm a bigger guy and, you know, I'm, I'm more built like a linebacker than a cyclist, but I, I love cycling. Mm-hmm. So, so I, uh, what I did was actually, I did a bit of research and I, I contacted uh, Walt or Justin is his real name, Justin Werner, Walt works. And he, um, ended up building me my 36er drop bar gravel bike, which still like, I got that built in 2016. That, that bike still, you, I take it for a ride and people just stop me and ask me what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I love it. And it, it is probably my favorite bike. Wow. Um, yeah. Even ones uh, I've built for myself. It's, it's just awesome. Um, so yeah, so that was 20, that was 2016. In 2017, I, like, I actually, I, my drop bar 36er was supposed to be my gravel bike, but it wasn't, you know, I went gravel biking with it and it wasn't, it wasn't ideal because I'd set it up single speed and it wasn't great in the hills. Um, so I had Walt or Justin build me another gravel bike in 2017. So that was my second custom bike. And that was, um, that had quite a, it was quite slack because of course, like myself, he'll pretty much build it any way you want it. And I got it built with a 67 degree head tube and, and, and built quite long. And that was great. It was a great bike. Yeah. Well, that and was a 29er? That was a, yeah, 700. Yeah. Yeah. The 29 700. It was um, lots of room, like 47 millimeter tire clearance. And he did, um, he did some DI2 um, drilling yeah. for me and stuff like that. So it was, it was pretty nice when it was done. And, and, and again, I, I love that bike. I still have that bike. Yeah. Where, where things like where the things kind of came together for me for frame building, I had never thought about it for myself because when I moved back to Calgary after my time in Grand Prairie, I did not, I had sold off, like I had quite a bit of larger fabrication equipment, like a big JD2 bender. And I had um, like a big, uh, big MIG setup and glass cabinet, all kinds of stuff. And I'd sold a lot of it because when I moved back to Calgary, I, I was, I'd taken a role, um, downtown kind of went corporate with my career um and my quote-unquote real job and and i and i'd sort of like let let some of those tools go sold them off and i didn't think i'd really do much fabricating again in my life but then i bought myself in 2018 uh, i'd i'd love my two custom bikes so much and my my fleet was kind of moving from carbon to steel which also kind of fit with my environmental um ethos or my understanding of things and bought myself a Reeb uh, donk, which was really cool. That's awesome. And, yeah. I remember having email conversations with Adam Procise and, and those guys did me a real solid. They gave me a uh, custom geometry without charging me the custom geometry price. Cause 
they said, well, you're, you're really tall. You don't fit any of our bikes, so we won't pe- penalize you for being tall. Yeah. But, <laughs> and actually, I, I've seen Adam in, in real life. I saw him at the World Single Speed Championships in Bend, and yeah. I think he's a tall guy himself. So. He is tall, yeah. No, I, uh, I'm, I got to visit their shop, and I was like, oh, yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and super good experience with them, and I, and I, I couldn't have been happier. But when the bike when the bike showed up in a box and I started assembling it, I realized that I had seen some of the parts on it before. And I and I think it was because when Walt had asked me to pick out dropouts, I had gone on the Paragon website. So I I pulled this recognized the head tube, I recognized the dropouts. And then I went on to Paragon, saw the stuff there, and then it just kind of clicked. I thought, well, hey. <laughs> I might be able to do this. And, um, I, you know, even the, the chain stays, I, I, I recognize those as well. I'd seen those on, uh, I think Nova cycle or something like that. I'd seen those yep. stays before. And then I, I kind of analyzed the bike and I thought I could probably do something like that. Maybe not as, as, uh, as, as precise and as good as people that are doing it for a living, but I think I could do it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so I was, I was sort of telling my, I was telling my family about this at a family get together and I had already priced out a basic setup. Like I'd priced out a, you know, like a budget frame jig and a fork jig. I'd put together kind of a list, Sputnik seat state jig was on there. I had a basic mitering device like, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I would never use something like that now. Off, the software, the bike had priced it all out and it was a pretty big number. And then, um, it was awesome because my family just like came together and they're like, you should do this. Um, cause of course they saw my fabrication I'd done in the past and they, they contributed and kind of lessened the blow of that, that big, that lump sum and all the stuff started showing up in the mail and I, I just started building bikes. I just went for it. I didn't, I didn't take a course. I didn't, um, I watched brew <laughs> brew racing has he's, his frame jig. He has like a, a basic, uh, primer on how to run his jig. Yep. He he attaches his C2 to his bottom bracket before he does anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, and because I started doing it that way, and that's still how I do it, even though I'm now using your jig, but I, I that's sort of where I start things. And I've built my own jigs that allow me to get a perfect 90 uh, every time mm-hmm. out of the frame jig, and then I install that on the frame jig after. Yeah, so that was 2019. I, I built... I built one bike. I built a grass court bike polo bike. <laughs> grass court bike, bike polo. Is that a thing? I haven't heard of that. You know, you know, it's funny. I, I'm not surprised you haven't heard of it because it, it's the guys that play it here have been playing it for about 30 years. Whoa. And when, when I, when I mentioned it to them that we may be the only grass court polo group in the, in the world, <laughs> they say, no, no, that's not true. That's not true there. They played in India, but they don't have any proof. They don't have any videos or. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we make our own mallets, and there's oh, uh, about 25 individuals that participate, and it's it's very very competitive. It's very athletic. It's fast. That's awesome. And, yeah, yeah. So grass court. So, polo. so you don't just <laughs> use a croquet mallet. No, no, we we take golf <laughs> clubs and we uh, <laughs> we take golf clubs and we make a custom head for the end out of. Um, like that puck board, that, that thick white, uh, ultra high molecular weight plastic or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so there's white heads on these on these mallets, and and then we use a wiffle ball. So that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you some pictures sometimes. But 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 yeah, that was frame one, and then and just and even just because I had I knew so many people in the community, um, like from all my the guiding that I had done for you know the years I did it, the word kind of spread, and and right away a couple people wanted me to build them bikes. Um, and I got some really good advice from a friend um, in the local bike industry. He said, well, look, you, you want to you get better at this, um, or maybe you don't. Maybe you want to just build a few, or I wasn't really sure what, where I wanted to take it at that point. But what, what, what ended up happening was I just offered out, like I said, look, I'll, I'll build you a bike for the cost of materials. And I did that for the first, or the, for the four, first four people. So the first four frames I built was just, I just charged people the cost of the steel, essentially, and and the cost of getting it um, powder coated, and mm-hmm. then I did them that frame afterwards. And there wasn't really any warranty or anything like that, but it was just, and it was good because it, you know, I'm sort of teaching myself as I went, and the consequences were low if I made mistakes. Um, by by 2020, I had I had built like seven frames by then, and it, and I ended up I did this kind of an art show, and this is just when just before COVID sort of started this would be in february of 2020 mm-hmm. and we uh, did a combination bicycle um like my frames and then a couple like a really good friend of mine who's a visual artist he did a bunch of paintings and we did a kind of an art installation in a local brewery and it was really well attended and um one of the cool things was i i was just a brand new frame builder really at that time but i left that event and i had a waiting list for seven frames wow and and what i had yeah, before that that event at the brewery, I had just I had I had sort of I didn't have prices written down or anything, but there were so many people showed up, and I I started doing some math in my head. I'm like, okay, I think I can maybe able to charge. Like, there seems to be a bit of demand here. I can charge a little more than than maybe what I first expected. And so there was I got that waiting list going, and then and so the first year was four, not 2020. That year I did eight frames. It was twice as much. So because of the success of that show, um, came into 2021 and I ended up doing another show like that with, uh, with Andy Tong, a local guy. And then Rolling Dale, Dale Marchand came down from Edmonton mm-hmm. and, um, and we all, all of us displayed our bikes and there was, again, there was a bunch of visual artists and that year I built 10 frames. So that was up until then it was 22 frames. And then now when I flipped into 2022, um, I think late last year, things started changing up a bit for me. I started um, feeling out this whole batch build sort of scenario. And and so I started, I did a run of hardtails. Right now I'm doing a run of suspension bikes. And then later this year, there's going to be a run of fat bikes. And it feels like these batch builds are sort of a, a smart way for me to go at least. Mm-hmm. The one-off customs are fine, but when you, you know, if you can build you know, 10 or 12 or 14 frames at once, it seems that that's uh, like a good, a good use of resources. You can do the same process many times over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the first, um, the first batch I did, I called these Nartails. They're, um, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't make the name up, but of course it's a mashup of the word gnarly and hardtail, but. I love the, um, the artwork. You had a t-shirt I saw on your Instagram and it was like a, it's like a, Velociraptor or some sort of dinosaur riding a hardtail, right? Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, very, it's a little, 
fun, cool. fun video. and cool artwork. Yeah, there's a few more. Um, there's some more artwork like that that I'm holding back until the bikes are done, like with the suspension bikes. Yeah. I, you know, the, the Nartel bikes were, and this this is an example of, I think, I think people build the bikes, from what I can see, people ride bikes that are good for their terrain. Um, you know, you go to Western, you know, to the coast, to the, to the, to the most extreme riding in Canada that I'm aware of. And the bikes are, are slightly different. People choose slightly different configurations. And where where I'm at in Calgary, the black trails and the and the newer trails that are being built are <laughs> it can be they're they're very steep. I mean, and like I mean, for most for people that are sort of getting into mountain biking and they're new to it, I think they find some of those steep trails utterly terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I know it it takes a lot of um, discipline. Um, you know, skill and, 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 you know, to really be able to navigate those, that steep terrain. And so the Nartails that I'm building, that configuration is basically designed to help someone conquer that really steep terrain and feel confident. So they're super, they're super, they're super long. They're, they're, they're ridiculously low. Um, lots of standover, lots of stack and they work really well. Um, I know people feel really, you know, the feedback I've gotten, people feel really comfortable on them. Yeah. Um, the numbers are a little out there from what most, most people would think of when they think of a hardtail mountain bike, um, the 63 degree head tube angles and 77 degree seat tube angles. Yeah. And, you know, even on the, the size, uh, yeah, the size large has a front center of 550 mil, uh, 530 millimeters. So it's a big, big cockpit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ended up using, yeah. So ended up using um, non-butted tubing on those bikes just because I, some of the first hardtails that were going out there into the local trails and then coming back, um, people are coming back to like, get a modification or get, get something done. And what I'm, what I was noticing was there were a lot of uh, dents on the down tubes for rock strikes. Mm-hmm. And so just going to non-butted tubing was kind of a no-brainer that way. I already had non-butted seat tubes in the bikes. And so to, to move to non-butted kind of made a ton of sense as well in that, in that regard. Yeah, I don't know. The, the the beauty of butted tubing, you know, it's it's very cool technology, but it complicates a lot of things. And, um, you know, it's just not always perfectly applicable in every instance. Straight gauge is, is pretty simple, especially if you can order full-length sticks and you know, like you were alluding to, uh, the two blazer work, or there's different workflows that are permitted when you can use straight gauge and, uh, just the budding process, the, the budded tubes are not always an advantage. Sometimes you want the full, you know, consistent wall thickness over the whole length for things like, you know, handlebar strikes or rock strikes or different things that are going to dent your tubes or other riding characteristics or, you know, absolutely. One of the great things was that I was, when I, this was the first batch of bikes. And so I, I sort of built, I built three sizes and I wanted to build enough materials to build 20. So I don't remember the exact split, but between what I'm calling a medium, which is probably actually a large, um, medium, a large and an extra large. And I, and I went and I used a, a feature of BikeCAD that I don't know if, if people know this, but I'm sure some people know this. But you can export your bike CAD model into a Python script. 
And then you can import that into FreeCAD and you can, and then from there you can build out executable files, step, step files, and just, and you can send them to um, a shop that has a laser cutter. So the, there's a shop, they're called, real simple name, they're called LaserFab and they're, they're east of Calgary. And they, when I first approached them about this, they, they kind of were a little leery. They wanted to print, they wanted, not print, they wanted to cut one and have me take it back and fit it up for tolerances. And so we did that. And it was like, it was such an awesome experience because you know yourself, like when you're building a bicycle frame and you put everything in the jig and you just dial that miter in per, like that cope, you get it perfect. And it just goes together and there's zero gap and you know it's going to be really enjoyable to weld and you know you've created something wonderful. Well, the, the tube laser, you know, you, you just take the parts and, and put, and as long as the jig's set up correctly, it just all slaps in there and it's, every cope is perfect. And, you know, it's down to the, to the millimeter. And so you can, and for me, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, I'm, 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 uh, this is still not my primary source of income. I have a lot of good help, but I, you know, and, and you know, this year I'm putting out almost 50 frames. And so I, I need to have a way of being able to move through them and focus on the important things like, you know, the welding of it, the design of it. Um, and, and, and so it's taken a lot of that stuff off my plate, which has been good. And allowed me to build higher volumes. So, yeah, no, and that, sorry, go on. Go ahead. Yeah. That, that laser process, uh, you know, really the only thing you need to do because, um, I don't know if this is a, like a, a U.S. to Canada thing, but but when you guys, I, I believe that when you guys send us that that um, chromoly tubing, uh, Promoly is the mill that is the tubing that goes to the guys I use, but it comes up and it's covered in like an anti-corrosion grease, and it's and it's it's horrible stuff, and so but and they and they don't they're not going to clean that before they laser cut it because they're I'm trying you know they're trying to be competitive which which is doesn't make any sense because the nearest company that can do the same works about 1500 miles away <laughs> but anyway <laughs> they, um, they don't clean it so it comes in it's just covered in this anti, this anti-corrosion grease and you have to clean that right off but once you do that and just um you know take an emery cloth or like whatever your your, your small belt sander to the to the edge of the tube and it just fits up and, and you can you can clean it and start welding and away you go yeah so. Um, you know, that reminds me of a tip I saw once for cleaning the inside of the tube. If you need to get like grease or oil or something out of the inside of a tube, uh, or specifically titanium or something. One, one trick that I never actually tried it, but you just get like a three footer or something of like, let's say quarter inch round bar. You chuck it up in your cordless drill. And on the end of it, you just need, you just put like a little rag or something that, that gets hooked on to you know, a little slit or something on the end of it. Anyway, you can, you can, you know, put some simple green or acetone or something on your rag and you can be spinning it while you push it through the inside of a tube. Um, I haven't seen that many people do that, but that seems like a pretty awesome way to mechanically, uh, you know, like um, <laughs> scrub the inside of a tube over its length while you're trying to clean it. Cause that's one of the issues with tubing. If you needed to clean the center of it, especially if you imagine something like titanium, uh, if you're going to like, if you're going to weld water bottle bosses or something in the center of the tube over its length, you would kind of want the inside of it to be clean. And how would you ensure that it's going to be clean? You need a way to get in there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I know. I just, I'm so stoked on the laser thing. It's, 
stuff comes to me and um it takes longer to clean it than it does than it does to tack it up in the jig and, yeah. and move it over to the like alignment table where I where I like to do most of my welding. You know, that also makes it's, me makes me think of another mm-hmm. hack actually for cleaning too is um if you if you get a restaurant dishwasher, the the cycle on that is like ninety seconds or something. I've heard. I've seen CNC machine shops will buy a like a restaurant dishwasher just for cleaning like um, coolant residue off of parts or something before sending it to anodize. So you know, oh. new it's a very expensive machine, but if you find one on you know Craigslist or Kijiji, I guess is the Canadian oh. version, right? Then uh, it might be pretty cheap. Yeah. That's true, yeah, Kijiji. Uh, but yeah, the laser thing is amazing. When I had, um, so I visited the Reeb shop in Lyons, Colorado, like a year ago, and I talked to them. And Adam Prosice was telling me about all the tube laser work that they were getting done on main triangles on these. I think it was a contract manufacturing gig they had or something. They made a whole bunch of bikes, um, and they had the front triangles were all tube lasered. So the seat tubes had the slit and they had the, they had the water bottle boss holes and they had the miters and the down tube had all the miters. And it was really like the front triangles on those bikes just slapped into the jig because all the tube laser work. And, um, we, when I interviewed Adam on the podcast, he was, we were going to talk about that. We just never got to it. He like, we kind of forgot about it while we were on the phone, but, uh, anyway, yeah, that is so cool to see and to hear about that process. But for them, they were using like bicycle specific rear end tubing. So they were using seat stays and chain stays, I think that were kind of intended for bikes. Well, you can't really feed those through a tube laser because with a tube laser for people who don't know, the idea is you start with like a long straight gauge tube and, and it kind of feeds this long thing through and it's, it's using a laser cutter that cuts the tube while the tube is being kind of rotated and fed through. Um, but if you had like a single length of like, let's say butted tubing, that just wouldn't really work um, because there would be no way to like just feed a bunch of tubes through one after another. But if you start with a 20 or however many feet long tube, uh, like 4130 straight gauge, then you can actually use that process. And so um, I'd be, have you been using it all for rear end tubing? Not yet. Um, but that's, that's coming soon. Um, that's actually going to, we're going to play with I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play with that a little bit this year. I, but so I, far it's, front triangles i think that would be great because like for instance the sidewinder chainstay yoke that i do is designed around round tubing and the last couple bikes that i built predominantly use round straight gauge tubing for the rear end and so like if you're trying to build race weight bicycles you might want to use bike specific double butted tubing for for a lot of things like uh you know like mountain bikes and things you might just get away fine with straight up straight gauge round tubes Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, the, the, the fat bikes that are, that are being designed right now and then delivered this later this year, I'm using a, a 3d printed upper yoke, but I, um, I'll get to that in a little bit. I, I definitely yeah. want to tell you because I'm super stoked on it. Absolutely. I, no, <clears throat> last year I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, the suspension bike. You'd mentioned that when we were just sort of setting yeah. up the, the beginning here. So, I I had purchased a Starling Murmur. Are you familiar with that bike? Uh, I think Dale posted that he had just got one, right? Oh, I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't. Know I that. think so. They're a Canadian well, Canadian full suspension bike company, right? That's a we are one. That's a carbon. That's a carbon super bike. But okay, but never Star- mind. I'm mixing. I'm mixing things up here. 
<laughs> Starling, Starling is a British brand. Uh, like okay. a, it, the front triangle is is um, Philip Rays with like big. Oh yeah, I know Starling. Uh, never mind. Yeah. I'm getting confused here. I, I follow them. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if so the I, Starling folks are listening. This is a didn't mean to forget who you were. I had bought one and I, and I, and it it was cool because like I had, I had broken so many, I had broken so many carbon bikes over the years, suspension bikes. I was, I was pretty sick of carbon and, and then coupled with the fact that there's really no way to recycle carbon. Um, maybe new carbon that's coming out now, but, but at least at that time. So I got myself the Starling Murmur. I like the story. I like the look of the bike. And, and I also, I also sort of knew that at some point, and I wasn't sure when, I wanted to build my own suspension bike uh, or bikes. And I thought it would be good to buy myself a steel suspension bike and check it out. And I really liked it. I, I really enjoyed the Starling. And I was out, I remember last year I was out in Squamish riding. And the, the, the riding there in Squamish and North Vancouver and those areas is very technically challenging. And the bike did really well. Um and a, a friend I was traveling with, her name was Sarah. <clears throat> she, you know, she, we were just walking one day. It was pouring rain. We couldn't really ride. So she she said, you know, you should build a suspension bike. And she listed off a few reasons why she thought that was a good idea. We had a couple beers, you know, we're laughing. And, and we walked past a truck on the bumper bumper sticker. It said, Shrimpalicious. I've, and I had no idea what that meant. And she says, and you should call it Shrimpalicious. And so anyways, that is the name of my suspension bike. It's called the Shrimpalicious. Um, and it's definitely an exercise in, in community and, and collaboration. I mean, it, this was not something I could have pulled off on my own. Um, a really good friend of mine, his name is Spencer Cutton. And he has a, a design company called Numa Design. So he's an architect. He also loves bicycles. And he, and he, um, I told him about it and he just, he really just wanted to be involved. And, and he is the reason that I, I think it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Well, they're not, they're not done yet. They're going out. A few of them are going out for paint next week, but just the lines on it, the aesthetic of it, he spent a lot of time making it look a certain way. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm convinced it's, it's a very unique look. And, and, and he just, you know, he's a guy that just wanted to design bikes and collaborate. And so he's a great friend and you know, to help me out on this. And another friend, his name is Curtis Peters, that runs an outfit called Lone Tree Enterprises. He sort of took that, the work that was done in Fusion 360 and in Linkage, and then he brought that into Autodesk Inventor. And he's a professional um, industrial designer, engineer for a living. Mm-hmm. Side, his, kind of, his side project is Lone Tree Enterprises. He modeled the bike, created all the files, the machining, the laser cutting, and, and he basically project manage that piece of things so stuff started showing up all the little bits and because he'd done it in autodesk he was able to give me plans now he also built me a rear end jig for the for the for building the rear triangles mm-hmm. all the, while this is happening um you know a young guy from the community uh like a, a young shredder named san menji approaches me and and and, and uh, just comes over one day to my shop and and i thought he just wanted to kind of see it <clears throat> like he thought it was cool, but what he actually wanted was to hook up and, and do some welding for me and be involved. And so at that point, things changed again because it, you know, me and Sam sort of worked a deal out. And so now I can, like I said, I'm just, I'm, I'm a small builder with a fa- fairly small space, good tools, but I'm able to build a whole bunch of bikes because I've got all these people helping me. 
and and contributing. And so it's it's allowed me to grow this thing and follow some advice of a good friend who said, you know, stay in your own space as long as you can, you know, before you move into that, you know, and you're paying a lease payment or you have to buy yourself a building, stuff like that. Yeah, for real. Mm-hmm. So the, the, proto- the bikes that are coming out, there's six of them, they're prototypes, but they're definitely going to be more beautiful than when this bike goes into production and, and you can buy one off of me, you know, like I have one on the shelf type of thing. Just the way they were built. I don't think we'll do it this way again. We'll leverage some of that technology we were referencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for now, it's, it's very much a, it's a labor of love, and I think they're going to be pretty cool when they, when they come out. Single pivot. They're simple. Um, but, you know, simplicity is also, I think, the strength sometimes because less things to go wrong. Yeah. No, these look really good. Uh, I, I think, I think full suspension builds are just such a cool, such a cool like space in the, in the frame building world, you know, it's a, it's a totally different and I think kind of bigger challenge than building a hardtail or a diamond frame bike. And, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Like there's so many levels of it. And I was talking to somebody recently about, um, you know, a, a project bigger in scope than just like a, a standard bicycle, like a, you know, three wheel cargo thing. And I was trying to explain why it's so complicated to do something like that. And what you were saying earlier about, you know, noticing between the Walt works and the Reeb that there were some common pieces, you know, it's like when you look at a diamond frame bike in the beginning, anyway, you have like your head tube, and that's going to integrate with, you know, it's like the, the proportions of the head tube are mostly defined by the headset you're going to use. And the proportions of the bottom bracket shell that you use are mostly defined by that bottom bracket and the crank set. And, and the tubes just kind of connect the dots, but you're maybe not even engineering the tubes. You're just picking like the Columbus tubes or whatever that exist. And, uh, you know, the, the act of like engineering a bicycle, like a diamond frame hardtail bicycle is a... Uh, you know, you can take it really far if you want to, but for the beginner anyway, it's kind of just like picking from some cut and dried options and then connecting the dots. And, you know, if you wanted to, you could just rob the geometry from, you know, some bike off of a manufacturer's website. You could just take a geometry chart and you could, you know, throw that in a bike ad and you could get the numbers you needed and you could build it. But when it comes to something like a full suspension bike or something more involved that has, you know, like a a recumbent or a trike or different things. It's like, well, now you need to, you do need to do a lot more engineering and you need to probably machine a whole bunch more stuff and you need to get a lot more creative because you're not just connecting these like discrete parts that have their own known way of doing things you, and you don't have as many options either for, for which way to take stuff. So it's, you know, like I think full suspension to me represents more of that sort of work. You know, there's a lot more design and engineering. There's a lot more decisions to make up front and then just the manufacturing gets a lot more complicated. Ex- oh, exponentially so. And I, and I was, and I was so, I mean, I, I just feel so, um, I guess I'm just, you know, fortunate to have people in my sphere that, that really understand the building of things. Um, you know, the, the suspension bike, what we did was we, we, we put the basic model into Autodesk and then Curtis started running finite element analysis on it. And, 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 and this is not a knock against other brands out there <laughs> at all. Um, but we realized right away that like when you, on a single pivot bike, when you have the shock sitting essentially horizontally, 
the place where it it sort of hits the down tube, you know, roughly in the middle of the down tube's length. Mm-hmm. And and because the bikes these days are so long, um, and especially my bikes are long, they have a big cockpit. Yep. Um, they there's there's some serious stresses that are placed on that zone. So the most of the people get around this by putting on like a big um, like a laminate, right? Like a like a bilam. They put like a second layer of tubing, and they spread the load out that way. I never liked the way it looked. And so what we, we, we talked about this, we had a couple of Zoom meetings because, you know, it's right in the midst of COVID when we're designing this bike. Yep. And it just popped in my head. I said, well, why can't we do something internally? And so, and because we had the laser, that's what we did. So the down tube, when they came from the laser uh, shop, they were peppered with holes. And there was an insert of a thicker wall tubing that I, I turned down on my lathe. And then it gets, it gets basically gets slid into the down tube mm-hmm. and where it, it plug welds all those holes. And so there's a lattice, there's an inner tube inside there, like a lattice tube that extends about six, no, maybe about eight inches on either side of where the shock mounts. And, you know, that piece to, to make that piece uh, manually, I don't think it would be possible. I think, I, I don't think you would be able to pull it off. Just be the, the amount of machining, it would just be, uh, it would totally defeat the amount of time you would spend to build it. So, again, I had really good help, and these guys just really stepped up, and and yeah, so it's, I reap the benefit of that because the bikes reflect the, the talents of the people that helped me. Yeah, that, uh, you know, just different processes enable different workflows that just otherwise wouldn't be possible, and I see that a lot with the machining stuff that I dabble in, and your example reminds me of a different sort of thing. Uh, a good friend of mine, Thomas Hosford, does ordnance bikes, like uh, dirt jumpers and you know big boy BMX bikes. And um, he has some absolutely brilliant gusset stuff that he does that's internal. It's different. It's like, um, I think it's like a piece of plate or, you know, like sheet stock that gets welded internally up by the head tube down tube junction. But it's it's so cool because you don't really see it and it's freaking brilliant and it's uh it gets keyed into the tube in a certain way and it's it's just so cool like when you start to ad, ad, like adopt and adapt these other um you know these other mediums and these other uh, capabilities it just really starts to transform the way that you can think about doing stuff and when you look at uh you know, the handmade bike world, for instance, like you, you know, a lot of bikes do have the same Paragon head tube and the same Paragon dropouts and they're connected and they, they look pretty similar. And I think part of that is just because a lot of us are using a relatively limited toolkit and uh, we're just trying to get the bikes made. But once you start to adapt uh, or adopt, you know, like CNC machining and, and CNC laser cutting and water jet cutting and that sort of thing, then all of a sudden the bikes start to really look quite a lot different because you know, now you're not locked into a small little box, you have options. And then people get really creative when they have options. And it's, it's beautiful to see. Well, you know, I was, again, given an opportunity to use technology this year, I was, um, I built a fat bike for a fellow, who's, uh, his name is Reg Mullet. He's a, just a local, he's a mountain bike legend locally. And he's, he used to hold the world record uh, title for a number of uh, vertical feet descended in 24 hours, him and a buddy that did the record together. And wow. just a real pil- pillar of the local community. He's been the uh, president of the, the biggest uh, mountain bike uh, society around here. And he's built a lot of trails. But he approached me last year because he just, he could never, I mean, fat biking is kind of a big deal here. Um, 
it's a semi-arid climate in southern Alberta, so we don't get a ton of snow. It does get cold, but we can we can pretty much ride all year. So he came to me and, and he wanted a fat bike that was something you couldn't buy. He wanted a fat bike with a 64 degree head tube angle and lots of standover. He wanted to fit a big dropper post in it mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, uh, adjustable rear dropouts. And so we built this bike and he absolutely loved it. And, and he loved it so much that he, a lot of his friends took it for rides. And one of them is an owner of a local mountain bike shop who commissioned a run of 16 of these frames from me. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that was a big deal. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty small outfit, but to, to kick it up to that level, and we had a few meetings and I, you know, I knew I could pull it off, but it also gave me an opportunity to try out some technology that I haven't used yet. And that is the direct laser sintering. Am I getting that right? Do S- SLM is one of them, I think. Selective laser melting. I don't. I don't know the acronym. Yeah. But the three D well, printing and, and metals. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I would have been leery of it unless I knew. Again, unless I had friends that were using that stuff at work and had done destructive testing and proven to themselves that it was ninety nine percent as strong as if you were to machine it out of solid stainless steel. Yeah. So. You know, the lower yoke was a no-brainer. I'd been using these conga yokes uh, from the really pleasant guy, Atlee Conga. He'd sold me, he'd sold me the, the, the executable file so I could make as many conga yokes as I want. And, and I'd been using those. And they're great, but I wanted to pull some of the weight out of this fat bike. Um, the guys that are going to buy it are pretty, pretty weight. It just, you know, they're really, um, they're just really into mountain biking. They like light bikes because they're going to carry them so far up the mountain and so on. Yeah. So to pull some weight out of it, started thinking about this and we decided to build a 3d printed lower yoke. Always, you know, some of that was getting mocked up and people were sending me, <clears throat> the guys were helping me, uh, Curtis Peters, you know, sending me files to look at in Autodesk viewer. And I'm looking at it and I think, man, I think we could do this for an upper yoke too. And so he designed an upper yoke as well, which and we were talking earlier about um, laser cutting um, the seat stays. So now on these bikes, we're gonna I'm gonna laser cut the seat stays as well because there's there's a plug which is very similar to your sidewinder, mm-hmm. which cast cast into that upper yoke. So rather than rather than um, you know and rather than making two bends, you know you got to bend each uh, seat stay, then you got to do four copes. You know there's the two. You know, and then if you're going to add a bridge, again, there's a bend and two copes. So that you take that whole thing out of the equation and, um, and, you, and you make it stiffer. And I think quite a bit stronger. So there's a single unified upper yoke piece that will, you know, and actually on your Cobra jig, there's a great landing pad for it. Yeah. When the bikes are getting locked up, it can basically just clamp down into the, into the seat stay landing pad and, and, and tack it in there and off you go. Yeah. So, that's the uh, that's the real beauty, I think, of what you can do with CNC machining and you know just like basically CAD designing this kind of stuff. I think about sometimes I'll I'll crack open um, Fusion three hundred and sixty and I'll start designing in CAD some sort of you know like dropout or something. And I think what's the pain point of the frame builder? And it's like oh man, everybody hates flat mount uh, flat mount brakes are just like a total time suck if you have to miter those and weld them in. So like, yeah, like people want more options when it comes to 
those or, you know, what, what you're describing here, again, a similar kind of thing. It's like there's a lot of steps involved between the bridge tubing and the bends and all the miters. And you're like trying to eliminate steps using technology. And uh, anyway, you know, like, so I'll be thinking about how, how can I design one piece like a yoke or a dropout or mm -hmm. something that just eliminates steps and makes people's lives easier, makes a better process and a better product. And it's really hard, you know, you look back like 20 years ago and people like uh, Mark at Paragon designing dropouts and like they were relatively, I mean, no knock against Mark, but they were relatively primitive. They were just like, it was a dropout. And then the brake mount was like a separate piece, you know, uh, nowadays it's like, I feel like the bar is raised, you know, people expect a little bit more and as it should be, you know, like the design software kind of permits that. I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot available there now today for us you know, designing little pieces of the bicycle to not just make it a little bit more useful, but to like really uh, execute a bunch of different steps with one piece. Yeah, I, I sort of feel like the technology that's out there now is sort of similar to, um, because I'm older than you, I can make this reference. You know, like <laughs> computers became, you know, more prevalent and, and suddenly, you know, everybody could be a videographer and everybody, you know, and you could be a, you could be a digital designer. Well, I mean, and, and these days, you know, if you're a maker, you have all these things available to you that, you know, it, with a little digging, you can find them and you can, and you can sort of, you know, like it, that's, that's really been working for me anyways. I, I still, I'm still building one-off custom bikes and, you know, milling the tubes in my milling machine. And, and then it's ac actually very satisfying and, and sort of cathartic to, to do it that way. Mm -hmm. But but I, but I definitely appreciate the technology when it comes to the batch builds and so on. Yeah. Um, you, know, especially you can take these parts. I mean, heck, uh, well, it took, it took almost 24 hours, but we printed the, this, these stop bike yokes out of plastic. So now I'm going to just uh, probably the next couple of days, I'm going to set up my, my Cobra jig there, my, my creator, and, mm -hmm. um, and then just zip tie that, zip tie those yokes onto the, you know, onto some tubing and start checking clearances and make sure that everything is going to work. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's just the cost of the plastic and the 3d printing before we ever make an actual part. Yeah. So. I, I absolutely love 3d printing and plastic for that kind of thing. It's just, you know, whether it's a positive, you know, mock-up of something or whether it's a little locational tool that helps you hold things together while you're doing something else, or you can, you can take it so far it's limited to your imagination most of the time and it's a very low cost of entry and it's, it's so cool. What can be done with that? Absolutely. And on, we really dug into it on, on these yokes and I mean, even just integrating the bridges and then on the upper one, integrating cable guides onto the underside. So again, that's one, that's one more step that, <clears throat> and they look like the Paragon ones I'm going to use. So it should be pretty seamless that way. Paragon's yeah. been awesome to actually on some of these bigger orders. They just, they don't have a lot of availability on some things, but then they'll, they'll just start accumulating my order in a box somewhere. Mm -hmm. And as, as they build it, they put it in the box and then they'll ship it all at once. So Coco has been really great that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough with like a multiple piece order like that when you're having, you know, stock issues, they, they just can't keep it on the shelf because it's such a, a boom for that sort of material, I guess. And, uh, that's great mm. that they can help you in that sort of way. I was, um, yeah, again, getting back to the, <laughs> to the sort of, you know, talking about the, the people that helped me out. I yeah. was, I was really fortunate, really fortunate with, uh, the folks that I'm working with. And even to the point where, 
when when I was starting, you know, the first run of hardtails was was enough material for twenty bikes. I I sold ten of them, and I, I have triangles now to last me for a while. If anyone wants one, but a good friend of mine, Chris Turner, he used to manage one of the biggest mountain bike shops around. So now he's a student, and he's moved on to other things in life. But he just wanted to kind of be connected to the to the bicycle industry, and he thought what I was doing was pretty cool. So. He, he basically was the guy that built all these connections for me to these to get OEM pricing because, as you probably know, you know a, a bike shop can buy a fork for X amount of dollars, but if you're making your own frames, you can buy it for much, much less. You just yeah. need to be able to hook yourself up with an OEM account. Yeah. So he, he got that all set up for me, and, <clears throat> and because there's more bikes going out the door now, you exceed a certain threshold, and then you can actually be pretty competitive selling complete bikes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's sort of the, that's sort of the next direction is, you know, I have to make some decisions about how, how this is going to look in the future and how much longer I can do two jobs for. <laughs> <laughs> so you're still doing the de- geology work as your day job. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I work for myself. I work from home, but I, I still have, I still have a, a full-time role as well as, as, uh, as, as building the bikes. So yeah, the help that is, is, is crucial to me to get this going. Yeah, no, it's really and, good to not feel like you're in it alone, to be able to leverage the other people who have diverse experiences, who have just spent time thinking about other things and learning about other things. And they can show up with like really good ideas and suggestion that could save you a huge amount of time and huge amount of effort and uh and just you know the sort of like multiple heads are better than one thing you know you just you get you can get a lot yeah. out of it when you know the right people who can really be helpful that's awesome well i saw i saw things going this way um because i, I was getting so much local interest and if, if you know calgary at all it's there's it's an oil and gas town and it is a fairly affluent place so there's there's quite a bit of disposable income here city of 1.2 million people right near right near the mountains Huge mountain biking scene, huge bicycle scene. And I was getting, I was, I was starting to get so much interest. I was, I was sort of predicting that I'd, I'd have a lot of demand, and I wanted to start doing these batch builds. But I, at the when I first started thinking about that, I wasn't going to do it myself. I was going to look for a partner. So I actually approached the guys at Simple in Portland, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, they just at first they were like totally down with it but then they came back and they were like yeah we can't we can't help you out we're too swamped and then i i just um it was one of those moments where like you know you're you're not mad but you're kind of frustrated at the outcome you wanted to go a certain way and it didn't yeah. and then just i use that i use that frustration energy to just figure it out on my own <laughs> and, <laughs> and now i <clears throat> and to be honest i think i think that it would be possible and i, I you may think this is a bold statement but I think it would be possible with the right business model to be able to compete with Asia, um, with, with, with production like in North America and, and maybe even like to be able to keep compete with those guys on pricing. I think if if technology was leveraged correctly and, um, you know, and, and you were, you know, because how did they compete? They, they, they compete because they have very cheap labor. Well, and, and I don't know how many people ask themselves this question, but, but, you know, are you, are you willing to um, ride around or invest in like these bicycle brands that are basically built on the backs of people that aren't getting paid 
a wage that you were you would consider a living wage. Yeah. And the answer, and if the answer to that is 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 no, then you might want to think, well, where can I source something locally? And unfortunately, in our culture, North American culture, a lot of things boil down to the almighty dollar. But that being said, I still believe that there, and maybe it's not 2022, but I think it's coming where these technologies start to come together, and you will be seeing bikes, large large quantity of. Uh, a bicycle is being built here in house in North America. I think the time's coming. I think I think you'll see it happen. I don't know if it'll be me, <laughs> <laughs> but somebody, you know, someone, someone, someone smarter and, and and has you know more capital to invest. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think things have shifted a lot in the last couple of years, and I don't know if that's a long term swing, but I think you know through COVID and supply chain crisis and stuff, there's just been so much. People call it reshoring. Of, of manufacturing and production for various reasons, but especially just because like, you know, the Suez Canal thing and all that, you know, it's just all this stuff that you just can't, you know, people want to consume and they can't get what they want when they need it. And it's frustrating and uh, whatever. And so anyway, um, the cost of material right now, you know, lumber, but also steel and, and all these other things just way up, you know, there's like the, the whole there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. But anyway, it's just like you, you can see it. There's a lot of stuff that has has uh, kind of shifted from where things got produced or the quantities of things that got produced. And uh, be cool, especially for someone like me, it'd be cool if the if the market trend was just like more people building bikes. Uh, and, you know. I, uh, I feel like it already is. I, I remember back when I first started mountain biking, there was, you know, a mountain bike action magazine. You'd see ads for fat city cycles and, and, and other ones that I can't remember cause I'm old, but there was, there was a lot of, there were a lot of small builders at that time. And, and I feel like there's a bit of a renaissance occurring at this, at this point. I mean, you're, you've been a beneficiary of that to some degree, but I don't, I don't think that's about to slow down. I mean, I know just my, myself and I, and I wouldn't consider myself to be inspiring by any means, but I think just what I'm doing is, is, has inspired some folks around me to take this on. And I'm all for it. I, I have zero secrets because having been in this now for, I guess it's four years, it's hard. It's really hard. And if if you want to build bikes, man, I'm, I will help you. <laughs> like, yeah. Because I know how hard it is. And if I respect that someone's going to, if you're going to do it and build bikes, I mean, I'll tell you anything you need to know and probably lend you some tools too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears> you, you talked about, you know, those folks who helped you learn to weld your Jeep back in 2001 and i mean that's the kind of spirit that like that can be transformative for someone who's new is to have that sort of you know whether it's questions getting answered or whether it's you know sitting down with somebody and teaching them hard skills like welding or lending them a tool or whatever it's i mean you know from your own experiences how much that meant to you and you know how much your little community means to you and paying it forward i think is like the you know the logical sort of extension of that appreciation well, when I first fired up, I was I was going to go. Um, Justin Waltworks at that time was offering like a one week course, so you could go and work with him, and you'd get a frame out of it. And that was my plan. And then it just, you know, it just wasn't my plan. It was like I started looking at it and the time involved, and and I got a ton of help. Even uh, you know, even last week, like I, if I send a DM to James at Black Sheep, he's amazing. He'll answer anything. I, mean, I hope he doesn't get swamped with questions now. But 
he, he, you know, and, and just, and stuff that like, I can't find it. I can't find it in a reference. I can't find it online. And after a while of trying to find it, I, I'll send him a DM and 99% of the time he knows exactly um, what I'm looking for. Yeah. And then he'll throw in some of his own experience, say, okay, well, here's what you should build a handlebar out of for material. And, and, you know, you could probably push it and go with this thickness, but I'd recommend this. And, you know, and, and I, you know, when you thank him, he, I, 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 I thanked him probably overtly the first few times, but then he answered and said, well, I, I, I'm paying it forward just like others paid it forward to me. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the coolest things about this community of frame builders. Like I've, I've met not many, not as many as you, but, uh, you know, um, folks like, like even I was at Sam Whittingham's shop, uh, Whittingham's shop naked. Um, <laughs> the way you said that made it sound like you were there without clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, it is, uh, it is like coastal British Columbia. So that could, that could happen too. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he, um, but, and it was the same way. Like he, he was just so, so open, like, you know, not guarded. And, and then that, that sort of informed my ethos. And like I said, I just, I don't have any secrets. It's, it's hard to do. And, takes a lot of money to invest in the tools and 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 you have to be okay with with failing because it's you know welding thin weld bicycle tubing is hard yeah it is it is hard and, and in fact even the, the fellow that welds for me now i i get it to a point where the, it's not going to shift under welding and then he takes it and finishes it so he spends his days welding custom exhausts on high-end ex- uh, sports cars mm-hmm. titanium AML, stainless steel he brought the first one back he said, "Wow, that's really hard." <laughs> so that was that, that was some validation. It was like, oh, "Okay, thank goodness, it's not just me." Yeah, yeah, it's <clears throat> it's hard and it has unique challenges too. You know, like especially I know I'll get real frustrated when I'm when I'm welding and you know there's just like a dropout, you know, where my chin should be so that I can get into some tight spot or you know that some yeah. of that stuff gets awkward or the thick to thin or whatever and. I think probably just about anything you weld has a some sort of unique challenge to it, you know. So even if you're really, really good at one thing, you know, when you it's humbling then to to try and weld something different. Well, well, like welding with a gas lens was a was a big game changer for when I started using a gas lens was a big deal, and then getting a tungsten grinder. So at least every tungsten I'm I'm using is exactly the same as the last one. So the consistency piece. Do Those you have, things were better. Sorry, uh, I was gonna. I'm curious what tungsten grinder you use. Oh, the the seventy five dollar special from Easton. Nice. Yeah, they uh, like odd- many years ago, eight years ago or something. When I bought my TIG welder, I I looked into that, and at that point, most of the ones that you would see on the market, they were. I want to say they were north of 500 bucks there were eight eight nine hundred bucks maybe there were cheaper ones but the narrative about those or the discussion was always like well they're really expensive but like live a little you know buy yourself that spoil yourself on that nice tool and um and i i didn't buy one because i was a cheapskate but uh nowadays knowing that price and and also it would just be nice to have a small is that like the little it's about the size of a dremel or something well, I think it is a Dremel. I think it's like a, I, I think it's basically a, a Dremel knockoff, and then they've built themselves a adapter piece for the head. Nice. And do, uh, I think do that, you like it? 
it's amazing. Yeah. yeah that, does a fantastic job. It seems nice because you you would you could keep it right there, you know, like you could clip it to the side of your welding bench or something so that you didn't even have to get out of your welding chair in order to grind some more, which would be, you know, nice. And then, you know, if you did have a grinder of some sort, uh, you could keep the belt on it that was appropriate for your grinding tasks and you wouldn't need to worry about, you know, for the fussy folks, you wouldn't need to worry about, you know, like whatever, like the cross-contamination. I know some people want to use a diamond wheel that only ever touches tungsten for their tungstens. Yeah, there. I think it does come with diamond wheels, but it, it's been really good. And up until that point, I was doing it the the way I was taught, I was just using a like a belt sander and then yeah. and then and then polish them with emery cloth oh, so cool. that they're shiny along their length, and then you sort of polish them from the the butt to the tip, and, and that seemed to work really well. But uh, it's time consuming. Yep. And uh, and that 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 Easton, yeah, it's a real it's a winner. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. I, I just love welding so much and I don't get to do it that much anymore. And I just, I always, you know, I'll see a lot of welding content in my feed from frame builders. And I just, sometimes it just kind of hits me. It's like, oh man, I got to sit down and weld more often. Cause it's just fun. Yeah. And I, um, I, I think, yeah, it's pretty cool. I think I'm, I am not a, I'm not very good at breezing. I, I could, I can do it. Um, I like using silver cause it's easier. Uh, of course, it's a little more expensive, but but I, I'm not, um, you know, and, and I'm no stranger to a torch either. But but I, I definitely prefer the the use of the TIG, and I I actually, um, I you know, and and this is not because of the the bike itself. It's I am very very hard on mountain bikes, and and again, it's not that I'm a particularly extraordinary talented rider. I'm I would say I'm like um, somewhere between intermediate and expert in that, in that gray area. But there's, um, I had, I actually managed to crack my Starling, um, which, which was too bad because I was planning on selling it now that my, my own, my own frames are blowing. Starling was awesome. Uh, I talked to them and they said, well, you just, you fix it and we'll, we'll send you some money, like pay you to fix it. <laughs> like, well, that's easier than sending it back across the pond. So that made sense to me. Yeah. But but where it cracked was on a fillet uh, braze, oh, and again, I'm probably going to get some hate mail over this one. But I think um, again, in my circle of friends, I have a couple of friends that are really brilliant engineers, and they had a look at it, and they and, and they and they look at, look at the way those fillet brazes are, and and then they you look at something like a classic, like a like a Brody bike, and the way that those are finished, and they're they're very smooth. Um, the 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 braze it flows nicely into the steel tubes and you don't really see where the braze starts and tube ends but these days this this look that's become popular is sort of these these rough unfinished brazes and and they do have quite an aesthetic look to them I remember seeing a Monet or Money bike for the first time I saw it in in um, in Bend in Oregon and and actually I think I, I met CL Money here. I, the guy, this this long haired guy that was standing next to it. And I said, uh, wow, what kind of bike is that? And he's like, oh, it's some local kid. But I think it was him. It was just <laughs> <laughs> but it was a beautiful, it was beautiful. But, but, but back to my point, I think, I think what, 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 if you look at those breezes, what, what you're really looking at is a, is a, you know, circumferential ripple of stress risers. Yeah. And, 
there, there's all these places where cracks can initiate because of the way that, just because of the shape of it. So, uh, you know, and it's interesting how knowledge gets lost over time. And I, and I think that perhaps like a guy like Paul Brody, a legend that he, that he is, he, you know, sanded those fillets down smooth. And did he know that he was making it stronger by removing material? I don't know. But uh, anyways, my point in a, in a really um, circumferential way is that I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of welding. It's, it's what I know. And um, I'm going to knock on some wood here. I've not had a, a bike fail yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, <laughs> when you're, uh, when, when I had Adam Procise of Reeb on the podcast, he talked about, you know, racing at a pretty competitive level on, uh, you know, production bikes, some sort of full suspension, it was a Santa Cruz or something. I think he specifically didn't say what brand it was, but, you know, anyway, uh, you know, pivot bolts would shear and all sorts of different issues. Seat stays would crack and stuff just because he's like a bigger, taller rider and he freaking rides hard. And, and I think you've had those experiences of just riding really hard, being a bigger person and just pushing the, pushing the limits of what these things were engineered for. And so anyway, I think that would give you a certain level of respect, you know, about what can happen, uh, you know, what, what kind of failures can happen and how that can be frustrating and how you want to avoid that. And, um, you know, like, yeah, you know, you get those experiences personally. Yeah, and I think that that might be the one the one thing that I'm trying to work on is to, I guess in my mind I'm always building the bike that I want to own, and and I need to start moving. Away. I know that I need to start moving away from that a little bit because what I want to own is something that's not going to break. Yeah. And and but that but I'm but that's my my experience. Yeah. That, like like you indicated, I mean, at 250 pounds, you know, six foot six, it's a lot of weight, a lot of leverage. Yep. And yeah, and it and it and it's hard on stuff. But then I, you know, someone who's slighter build, um, more of an average size person, they don't need that strength that I'm building into it. So yeah, it'll it'll probably last them forever, and they'll <laughs> they'll <laughs> someone will f- find it 50 years from now, like in a shed. Uh huh. But did it? But did? But but can I save weight? Um, yeah. Kind of you know, and so that sort of my challenge going forward, I think is to put myself maybe more in the mind of my, my customer than in my own mind. Yeah. That's the classic, like sort of business advice is like, well, you're not your own customer. So, you know, like for instance, you know, I built this business around frame building tools, but I had spent very little money on other people's frame building tools over the years, you know? So like how my, how is my intuition and my own inherent, like, you know, yeah, intuition, I guess, like my judgment about what I think other people would value. How, like, how is that supposed to help me? Because I never really spent that much money on this stuff. You know, Anvil Bike Works was a business the whole time I was getting started and Sputnik Tool and, you know, a handful of others. And I, I spent a grand total of a couple hundred bucks with any of them, maybe, you know, but now I, I run a, a company and we make that stuff and sell it to the public. So I always have to like, kind of gut check myself and I have to think like, is this, is this what my customers actually want? Or like, is this just classic Joe being a cheapskate trying to DIY everything? Like maybe that's not what my customers want. And the same thing is true for anyone who's making any sort of product is, um, you know, like you have your own starting place and you're, you're probably catering toward that. And it's good because you might be solving a problem that the market hasn't addressed or that other people haven't taken care of. So maybe 
maybe your unique perspective is what everybody is waiting for. On the other hand, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's not what, what folks want or that's not in service of what you're trying to do. And so it's just good to be aware of it, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, and speaking of frame building tools, I, I've been super happy. Like I, um, that the creator jig's just been a real, it's been real, really awesome. I, I pulled the trigger on that about the time I was getting confirmation of this order for 16 frames. And, um, and it's been really, really good. In fact, I use my alignment table a lot less. Well, good job. <laughs> I really, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's the, the whole idea with that was just to make it easy to use and to help people do really awesome work and to try and make it something, you know, beautiful that kind of matches the beauty of the bikes that people are trying to build. And, uh, you know, like folks like yourself give me really glowing feedback about that. And I haven't heard really hardly any critical feedback. Maybe people are too polite to tell me, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's been a pretty good experience so far and I'm always really happy to hear those things. And I'm also happy to hear critical feedback too, so that I can, you know, fix little details and refine things and tune them up. Well, I've always, you know, I, I, I always, um, even from a young age, I, I felt that like it was, it was sort of like my duty to buy tools that I needed. Like, I guess it was just how I was, how I was taught by my, my father actually, actually remember him saying, you know, if you're not, if you need that tool, you're going to buy it somehow. Yeah. You're, you're either going to borrow someone's and break it, or you're going to, you know, the, the money and cost it's going to take to go rent one or like, if you really need this thing, just go buy it and then, and don't buy, don't buy the cheap one. Yep. I don't know how many times you're going to need it again. And that, that's worked out well for me. I have a, have a massive collection of tools and, and, um, so it was really just the bicycle specific stuff that I needed when I got rigged up. And, um, and as I talked about earlier, I've just, um, you know, there are other people that are getting started in this. So it's, it's really easy to, to sell gently. Well, I mean, use the frame <laughs> for those times you get frustrated and, Anyways, but, but, uh, they're pretty easy to, to get that stuff out the door and then use that, put that towards like the, the more higher end pieces that, that have benefits to them there. You know, there's, there's a lot of good budget stuff out there, but, uh, for me now, uh, bigger orders and, and also a lot of, and, and there's, there's bikes now going to people that I don't know. Um, at first it started as a friend thing and then it was within the local community, but now there's people I, I don't know at all. They're getting bikes for me and, and so there's just that I want to be producing the absolute best product I can. And yeah. so that means I have the best, the best tools that I can get. Yeah. Well, and what you were saying about something you learned from your dad, you know, to, uh, you know, just, just buy the right tool. It's funny. Cause well, the, the saying that that makes me think of is if you need a tool, um, you pay for it, whether you buy it or not, that's something I've heard you know, which is that idea basically. Um, <laughs> because yeah, you're going to pay for it one way or another and you might as well just buy it. Um, you know, if you can afford it or something, of course there's exceptions, but, uh, I feel like I was not raised with that mentality that much. Um, cause I, I grew up on a farm and farmers pretty typically will just kind of get by with what they have and they'll, they'll <laughs> skirt along the, the risky edge of things. Like, you know, we were always, moving big, heavy stuff with a loader tractor when it wasn't always the right 
piece of equipment and all that sort of stuff that you do um, when you have a wide variety of tasks and you can't always specialize with things. And of course they had some nice tools on the farm shop too. But anyway, I feel like that was kind of my dad's mentality was, you know, not to get too fancy with things. And as I've grown up, I would, uh, I would feel a little bit guilty about just like buying nice tools for myself or something. And then I realized like, no, this is, this is a pretty sensible, pretty sensible investment typically because tools usually are incredibly useful. They're most tools are priced pretty reasonably for how valuable they are for you, especially like hand tools and cordless drills and stuff are such an insanely good value. And then most, most decent tools, if you take care of them, they have some sort of pretty good resale value too. Oh, absolutely. And I've bought some good used stuff too. I bought a horizontal uh, milling machine, which was just been really awesome. And it was like, like I paid $1,100 Canadian for it, which is about 700 us. That's awesome. And it's fantastic. And it, but it just weighs a lot when it showed up on a, on a lift gate truck. Yep. Um, at my shop, which is, which is in my, which is attached to my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this thing was so heavy it fell over in the back of the truck and it smashed out the smithereens. And so this, this kid shows up with a, he's driving the truck and he goes open the back and then he comes in the grab me. He's like, Oh, mister, we have a real problem here. <laughs> and uh, and uh, like I walk out there and there's this mill just laying on its side. I mean, and I think it weighs about 1200 pounds. Yeah. And uh, boy, so it was like, went to grab some of my neighbors. <laughs> we got all addiction with the thing. Like, God, it stood up. I had a, like, um, someone lent me an engine hoist that you'd pull an engine, fuck an engine out of a truck with. Mm-hmm. Boy, a few hours later, the thing was in there. But to its credit, I mean, it was built in the 50s. And, uh, you know, the truck got the worst end of that. The mill was 100% fine. It didn't damage anything. That's awesome. Yeah, real commonly, what'll happen is, like, it'll hit a, like, a handle attached to a lead screw. And it'll bend the handle, or worse, it'll bend the lead screw. And, uh, you know, the rest of it, the actual columns and the table and the, the main castings are usually a little too stout to get damaged. But those, you know, the, the power feed knobs and all the hand wheels and stuff, those will get screwed up in a hurry. And if you're smart about it, a lot of times, well, you build a better pallet maybe, but also you can take those hand wheels off and then they don't get banged into by the fork truck or they don't get banged into if the thing tips over or something. I, I, you know, it seems to be like just watching people's Instagrams that, that in the States, um, sort of like pianos, people are just giving away bridge ports. <laughs> like you, you probably just walk into a, you know, a used equipment dealer and the guy's like, Hey, like y- you want one, you want three for the same price, you know? Yeah. Like meanwhile, um, those bridge port mills are actually really rare in Canada. Um, they're not, they're not very available. And so um, I'm sort of I'm in the process right now of looking at an email, and I'm sort of going between like a brand new Taiwanese unit or 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 like picking up an older one, but the older ones are are tough tough to find. I don't think you guys have that problem. I think those mills are pretty plentiful. Yeah, well, it depends where you are for sure. Where I've lived in Michigan and New York State, they're pretty easy to come by, and I know it's just like you know the old manufacturing cities, uh, you know. Ohio, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, you know, Michigan, all these, I don't know, I don't know everywhere in the U S that well, but like there it's, you can find, especially like, 
let's say you wanted to actually machine parts on a bridge port, you would want the ways to be reasonably tight and all that. You would want like a nice machine. But if all you're doing is notching tubing or using it as a glorified drill press, then you don't really care if the machine's clapped out. And and then th those machines, the clapped out ones, you can get those for five hundred or a thousand dollars pretty easily a lot of places. But I know when you get out west into which is honestly in the United States, most of our customers, I would say, you know, a good chunk of you know, half of our customers are more than half are in, you know, Colorado and uh California, Oregon, Washington, New Mexico. And I don't think any of those states have a whole lot of that stuff. Maybe California has a fair amount of manufacturing, but I think the rest of the the Western U.S. is pretty pretty scarce for that stuff. Yeah, different economies. I mean, Canada's always been and and still is a resource based economy. I mean, <clears throat> basically resource extraction accounts, you know. And it, Canada does have manufacturing, but it's further east, um, yeah. which is you know, as well be on the other side of the world from where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you some about learning to fabricate. So you, you had mentioned there's about 10 years where you didn't really ride a bike uh, up in, you know, northern Canada there. And uh, mm. you, you started with a MIG welder, but sounds like you had done quite a bit of TIG welding in that time also, right? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> as I, you know, and, and that was that was interesting because I ended up competing in this um this race called the king of the hammers which is down in california i think it still runs but at that you know it was the first year that it ran and i think i, I don't know i think i had a bigger eagle back then i thought i could you know build this thing um you know at my house and then take it down to the big leagues and, and be able to compete i mean like it left the line but it didn't make it to the finish line right <laughs> but but i had to learn some different fabrication techniques um <clears throat> because I was building steering linkages and stuff like that and starting to get into um, chromoly tubing, heavier, much heavier walled stuff. And it just, and, and just the people I was looking at on the forums and the, the message boards at that time that were doing the same thing, uh, they were all using TIG welders. Um, and so that was, again, by the time I learned TIG, my buddy who had originally taught me to fabricate, he had passed. Um, he, yeah, died way too young. He died younger than I am now. Um, That's tragic. He gave me all the skills of like the, the, the MIG and, and running the torch and, and taught me just general fabrication practices. Like, you know, and even to this day, like I don't, I take the, I take the guards off my grinders. I don't, I just, there's a lot of things that I just learned from him. Maybe they're bad practices, but they, they work for me. And he was all about finishing. Like he, and he would say like welding's one thing, but then you have to also finish it too. There's, and so a lot of times, like, for example, when I'm finished a frame, I'll just grab a wire wheel and, a, and, a, and like one of my, like a bigger hand grinder and I'll just go over it and, and, uh, and just smooth, smooth those welds down and just, and make things, just make it right in my mind before it goes out for paint. Mm -hmm. but yeah. So I had another fellow teach me how to TIG and, and it's interesting because I, I remember back to that process and I remember thinking how hard it was. Because with the MIG, all you did was you grabbed the, you know, yep. you grabbed the nozzle, you grabbed the, st grabbed the stinger, pull the trigger, and uh, what can you influence? Well, you can influence the the rate of the wire. That's preset. I I don't I don't know. I suppose there's probably rigs where you can have a little twisty knob somewhere nearby that you could adjust the the the, the rate of the wire and maybe even the temperature remotely. But I'm not. I wasn't aware of anything like that. Mm -hmm. So you and you would just run your 
you would run your MIG and and after a while you got pretty good at it and 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 you think you're you think you're pretty you know you're pretty proud of it and then you try and TIG weld well <laughs> <laughs> and it's so so very hard because now you're you know three of your limbs are occupied at once and um but you know it's it's like anything else it's it's just time and time and practice i remember one of the podcast one of actually one of your youtube videos i was watching you're talking about tig welding and and you said you wouldn't buy a tig welder without a pulse feature and i remember that and i thought well yeah but you should probably learn how to tig weld first and yeah. so anyone that's li- anyone that's listening if you don't know how to tig weld this is my advice. I'm just some I'm some goof from Canada, but mm-hmm. look, you, you want to learn how to weld without that thing first, yeah. because you don't really know where to use it yet. Yeah. Once you get good at tig, once you get good at tig welding, then you'll know exactly when you need that thing. And actually, I I, I tend to use my like I have a standalone pulse box that it's like a add on to my my tig welder, add on to my my Miller, but it um, I use it mostly when like I'm, 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 I'm joining stays to a dropout and I'm getting real close to that edge and I don't, and I want to be able to get a good fusion weld, but I don't want to be putting too much heat into the material. Yeah. And it's, and it's pretty tough to beat the pulse welder, um, for that. And you can just keep welding across, get a beautiful looking weld and, and you haven't, you know, if you erode that lip of that machine dropout, that's almost impossible to fix. Yep. So. Yeah, I I didn't use the pulser for years and years because it was just a, I mean you could use it as a high speed pulse, but I would I always wanted to get that lower speed where it was kind of controlling the freeze pattern and help you establish some rhythm in a cosmetic thing and but but it didn't work for me. I, it felt like a coordination snafu. It was like I was already trying to juggle everything else, and then now I got to time what I'm doing to this pulse, and I didn't really like it very much, but. I sat, I kind of made myself just only weld with it for, you know, a couple hours here and there over the course of a week. And then it, it kind of clicked and I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. And I liked it. And um, yeah, my comment about I wouldn't buy a machine without it. I mean, I would buy a machine without it, but since it's like a pretty accessible option these days, like pretty much every new welder, all the uh, inverter machines seem to have that as an option or for not much more money. In, in that environment, I would say, yeah, just buy one. Because if you use it just a little bit here and there, it's probably going to be worth it. But uh, I don't yeah. use it that much anymore. And my the this building that I bought less than a year ago, uh, the, the seller left me this old Transformer Lincoln welder from the late 70s, early 80s. And it does not have a pulser. And I'm not worried about that at all. I'm pretty excited about that machine. Oh, tra- yeah, Transformer, cool. Yeah, and I, it probably has a really clean signal. Have you welded with it? I haven't. No, it. Uh, I'm just about ready to plug it in, but then I need to plumb in the. It's got a water cooler where the practical way to hook it up is to actually put it on tap water, and I haven't done that yet. I need to run like a hundred feet of PVC line and a drain. That's <laughs> a whole thing. But that machine is so cool. It's a Lincoln Ideal Arc 300. But it the chart says that you can actually weld up to 375 amps, which is just nutty. I have a water-cooled torch on it that is rated up to 350 amps, and you can go above that, you know, for short bursts, I'm sure, which I, I feel like that'd be the amount of PPE that you would need to wear to weld at that 
amperage and not get like a rage and sunburn immediately. Uh, just be nutty. No, I think too. I mean, you know, are you going to be, you're welding half inch plate together or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like one inch aluminum or something. Yeah. I don't, I, uh, yeah. I, I don't think that I would need that ever, but it's just a, it's a burly machine. And, uh, for people who don't really follow me on Instagram, it was a really cool story with it. So I bought the building and the, the seller was selling off his old machine shop equipment. Nobody wants an old transformer welder. So he just left it for me. Oh, that's cool. Whatever kind of charming machine. I posted about it to Instagram and our friend, John Munsenmeyer in town who owned nuke proof, uh, back in the nineties. And he had worked at slingshot, the, the bike company that was from grand rapids here in the eighties and the nineties slingshot manufactured bicycles. And this was their TIG welder. It's like a totally weird fluke coincidence that it ended up in the shop of this other guy that ended up buying a building from. Uh, but it has a slingshot sticker on the face of it. And when I posted a picture of it, our friend John said, I know that welder. I put that sticker on that machine in 1987. Mm. So I have a piece of cycling industry history. Uh, those, if For people who know, you know, the slingshot, it was like a, it was a mountain bike that instead of a down tube, it had a cable <laughs> intention. It was like totally nutty. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, there were some ideas back then that were, were <laughs> early ideas that made it through the passage of the evolution of the mountain bike. However, super innovative and and outside the box. It, that bike had a really unique look. I mean, yeah, it had this sure. eye. And um, you can you can just imagine. I remember the, the Klein, Klein made a suspension bike that was designed to kill you. It was called the the Mantra. Those are the Mantra. <laughs> So it, I think it had the bottom bracket attached to the rear pivot. So, you know, I think it would just pitch you over your handlebars at any moment. That's funny. But, but no, as far as fabrication goes, it was, uh, I guess so, it was just it, along the same theme as like what I'm doing now. I just have, I had, I had really good people in my life that were willing to teach me and show me. I, and in fact, just recently I had um, a fellow from Edmonton, north of here, where Rollendale lives. Uh, he does bike fitting. And I had a customer up there, um, a woman, uh, and she's tall. And we were really struggling to, because we we're she's sending me her body measurements, and I'm putting in bike cat and sending her back a model. And and it, and and she says, "Oh, that's that's bigger than my dad's bike." Like what? And it, the process just kind of wasn't working, um, which was a new thing for me. Uh, she's a very experienced mountain biker, but it just I wasn't able to fit her. And so uh, connected with a bike fitter in Edmonton, and he just he did just a bang-up job of fitting her. But then rather than getting paid to do that, he said, well, I'd like to come down and have you teach me how to TIG weld. So and he's been put, he's been working for, he's been working on it like an hour a day kind of thing for the last few months after we got mm-hmm. together. And I kind of showed, showed him the basics. Uh, and, he, and he's still, he's, he's still not at the point where he would want to weld a bike for someone. So. For anyone listening, yeah, TIG welding super hard, and yeah. it's worth keep keep plugging away. Yeah, it is hard, and I think that approach of doing like an hour a day is a really good approach. You know, something like that. If you have a little more time, you could do more, but uh, I think that's about the sweet spot. You know, like half hour to an hour a day, or something, or a couple times a week. Really, you know, over the course of months, it is a hard thing to do. But like, you know, if you if you had if you had a long weekend where you put in. 20, 30 hours trying to weld, uh, you know, that's just too much at once. But if you only ever practice once a month for 20 minutes, you probably never really notice an improvement. But I think, you know, an hour or two 
uh, you know, spread across a week over two or three different times. That's a really good way to just chip away at your, just your comfort and your familiarity. I think too, um, one thing I would, for someone who's learning, I, I've, a few times I've recommended to get the best uh, foot pedal you can afford. Oh yeah. It's something that, it's something that has a lot of, um, travel because, um, I, I find that the, like the, the pedals that come with the welder stock, they're pretty binary. And I, and I know folks that TIG weld and they just go right to full pedal and they're controlling their heat mostly off the machine. They're not really controlling it much with the foot. So they're, they're whipping the torch and, and they're running a full pedal. But, you know, I, I know, I think back into my history when I, at the time when I upgraded to a foot pedal that had like a good five inches of throw, that, that was a real game changer for me. I could, you know, because you can just tip in and, and you're not even really heating up the material. And then you can just slow the whole process down and, and really break it down for yourself, you know, puddle after puddle after puddle. And that was, that was advice I was given at the time too. And I was first learning was like, what's the rush? Just slow down and, um, and, and do it as slow as you possibly can. And that was a way to get good at it. Yeah. The, um, the machine I got way back, I think I, I had heard that critique from people when I was reading reviews. They said, yeah, the stock pedal is garbage. Get the deluxe pedal. And so I never even got to know the stock pedal because I had them switch it out at the at the distributor or whatever. They changed it out for the deluxe pedal. But yeah, the one I have feels pretty good and you can get pretty nice sensitivity with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's important. Yeah, that was, that was it. That was the story of just like, the fabrication piece was like when I, when I did decide to, to kind of take that plunge and start building frames, I already had a lot of that background and, um, yeah, there's, and that, that was what made it easier. But I know there's folks that jump into it. They really want to build bikes. They got the passion. They have the money to buy the tools. But then it's, I have a lot of respect for that because they don't necessarily have a ton of fabrication experience. So they're not only learning, uh, the bike side, but they're also having to learn the basics around the fabbing. And I think that's tougher. Um, yeah. So kudos to people that are doing that. Yeah. I think, um, frame building is so multifaceted and it's, I think it's just really hard, but you know, like how do you know how to fit somebody? How do you know what the geometry should look like? How do you know the engineering of the tubes? How do you, you know, source all the parts and set up all the accounts and market yourself if you're trying to sell anything and, the legal side of that and uh, just the balancing act of it. And there's just so many levels and layers to trying to take this stuff on, especially if you want to do it, you know, commercially for sale. But like, even if you just want to do it yourself, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And so, yeah, if you have one of the sort of core disciplines, if you're already a little bit familiar, you know, just Mm. really kind of helps soften the blow of that, that learning curve. Maybe this is just my bias, but when I, I see a lot of people out there riding bikes that are too small for them, this is, um, I, and I, I feel, I, I feel like I see this all the time and it, it's been the case with a bunch of my customers. Now they, they look at the bike, they're like, man, that's huge. But then they throw a leg over it and they go for a ride and take it down a gnarly trail and and they think it's just perfect. And, and I think, I think that's one thing that I've seen is I think, I think folks do ride bikes that are. I think that tendency is towards a too small, uh, too small rather than too large. Yeah. Um, I also like this trend where rather than going to like this small, medium, large, extra large, there's just the sizes, especially in the mountain bike world where your stack really doesn't change all that much. 
between the sizes because you know you're limited by the the fork really is what controls the stack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. So I think I think yeah I think definitely like from the sizing pieces, uh, you know, and, and frankly like um, even you know even climbing having a bigger cockpit is nice. And there's this, there's this trend now towards more upright C2, which also negates the need for such a extremely bent uh, C tube to clear a tire because as the C tube stands up, that rear end can tuck in further and further. Yep. Gives you gives you you know you still get that tucked rear end that a lot of people want, but then you you uh, you also have that nice uh, kind of climbing position where you're sitting a little more upright. That seems to make a big difference, especially with the modern. Of the modern mountain biking, um, where people are moving to this more like enduro approach, where they're totally cool with like pedaling up a gravel road for two hours to get that one sweet piece of single track on the descent. <laughs> so you so you got to build a bike that is actually comfortable to sit in that saddle for for an hour and just grind away. Yeah, and it's and the more upright the seat tube is, it seems to be seems to suit people. They seem to like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I got a, a point on the list here that I really am excited to get to, which is that uh, you started a podcast with somebody else, yeah. uh, partly based on um, a recommendation that I threw out to the public that more frame builders should consider doing podcasts. Apparently, that was at least partly inspirational to you uh, making your own show. Tell us all about it. 100% inspired by you. I would have never thought to do that. <clears throat> but obviously, like, your podcast has been so awesome for me. I've learned a ton from listening to it. And and then be able to get a little insight into these people that I've, I, you know, I, I really look up to. So so that, that's that been huge. But then when you, you posted that piece on your Instagram about, uh, you know, hey, yo, you, should, you guys should think about this. And um, it sort of it really stuck with me and my buddy, Chris Turner, who uh, is the fellow I'd mentioned earlier that helped me with a lot of the OEM connections. And he had a background in audio. Um, and so he went on Amazon and just picked out what he, the gear that we thought we'd need. He, he got this, this really cool rig. It's a four channel um, battery. It can be battery powered or you can run it off uh, like a, like an external battery or internal battery. Mm-hmm. And you can record four channels and the thing would fit in your fanny pack. Right. And, um, and the name of this podcast is legendary, uh, local legends in legendary locales. And, um, we've been interviewing people that we think are really pivotal in the, uh, you know, pivotal in the local community, mm-hmm. like those low, you know, the nexus, the intersection, you know, the people that are sort of the intersections between the different facets of the cycling community locally. And as you'd stated, you know, ideal customer, because, um, you know, obviously, the more people that know about my offering, the more the more bikes are going to go out the door, and the the closer I get to my dream of doing this as a full time gig. So yeah. I want to get the word out that this is happening, but I also don't want to be like, you know, like yourself. I don't want to be in people's face and be like, "Yeah, my stuff's really wicked." Well, I, I'd prefer word of mouth, actually. Yeah. So, so you do this podcast, and um, and I and I. And, it, and that's what we're up to. And uh, like we've been recording episodes, we, we just, we go right to the trail and uh, go for a ride or, 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 or dig on a trail. And then we, uh, we sit down and, um, and record it. And uh, the, the, the weirdest thing for me was listening to my own voice in the headphones, <laughs> Yeah, but, but you get used to it. And, and a really cool thing happened. We've, we've recorded two. We got a bunch more we want to record. Um, 
but just the, that that intimacy that evolves over the course of the conversation, and then you feel like you're at the end of it, you feel like you know the person better. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thanks for that inspiration. I'm I, I uh, I'm really stoked to get these out there, get them on some kind of a, a podcast uh, hosting format. I'm not sure what Chris has planned for that. It's sort of his baby, but we we're going to record them together and sort of play off each other for the questions we ask and, and so on. Yeah. So I think it is a great idea. I'd rather, I'd rather listen to a podcast um, when I'm driving somewhere than, than listening to some, you know, tunes. I can listen to tunes when I'm welding, but I want to, you know, it keeps me alert when I'm driving. I yep. listen to something that I'm really interested about what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think I agree with all those points you made. And I think, um, um, uh, before I forget to say, I've been using as like a distribution tool for the podcast. I use anchor.fm. So like if you type that into your URL bar on your web browser, anchor.fm, and then you can make an account there. And it's, um, there's probably multiple ways to distribute your podcast, but that's a pretty good one. Cause it's relatively user-friendly. I think there's free versions. I believe my version is free. And you can uh, publish in one place, and it goes to Apple and Spotify and all down the line. It does all those, and it has some other bonus features and stuff. So, And it, it hosts them, too. I used to host it on my website through Squarespace, and that worked, but it was syndicated well through Apple, but it wasn't on Spotify or these other places that people wanted it. And so, anyway, for anyone who's trying to start, I think that's a just a useful uh a useful hosting tool, but I, I had made a sales pitch basically to my Instagram followers. I said, you know, doing this podcast has been so good for me and my business. And I think that more people should make podcasts. And I was directing that specifically toward frame builders, but, but yeah, what, what's been so good about doing this podcast for me to recap this is that uh, for me, I get to know all these people who I think are interesting, who I have something to learn from. A lot of my guests are customers in some capacity, and I get to know them better, which is just like really cool and special. But then, uh, you know, I get to keep my finger on the pulse of my customers' sort of industry. And I know sometimes a guest really feels special that I ask them to be on. And like, that's a cool thing to be able to do for someone, for them to give them the opportunity to kind of tell their story and share it with everyone. Um, there someday, I don't know that anyone who's been on this podcast yet is deceased, but probably someday somebody will. And, and, you know, then their story can't be told anymore. So hopefully this is like a record that, you know, some of these, uh, some of these people, you know, we, we help them tell their story before it's too late, you know, and that the story gets shared. Another benefit is that one builder might hear another builder's story and then say, wow, you know, we really have a lot in common and they might get together and, and, you know, get to know each other. I know that's happened a handful of times, and I think it just kind of knits the community together a little bit. Like I know on the Velocipede Salon, there used to be a, a feature called Smoked Out. And it would be like whoever it was would nominate some builder to like kind of tell their story. And I would read through those sometimes. And it was pretty cool. And that was a forum. And I think the podcast does a similar thing pretty well. And uh, anyway, I'm just trying to kind of record it and share it. But then it also has the benefit of what you do is you make the podcast about what your customers are interested in. So like I'm interested in frame building, but so are my, you know, my customers are. And if I can corral the people who are interested in frame building to my show, that's good for business for me. But now imagine you're a frame builder and you love making gravel bikes or you love making enduro bikes or whatever it is you do. Well, you can make a podcast about that. And now like 
if anybody listens, they're probably going to be like the perfect candidate to be, you know, your frame building customer because they're getting to know you and they're getting to appreciate this contribution that you make and they love the kind of riding that you're talking about. So it's just like, it's, it's a whole lot of good things in one. And I would recommend more frame builders consider, yeah, just getting out a microphone and just recording a podcast. That's awesome. I had the benefit when I started building frames that I was already a member of a large community. I was a member of this community of mountain bikers that I had gone on group rides with, guided, mentored over the years. Hundreds of people. That's awesome. Um, but, but um, you know, if you don't have that community around you and, you're, and, you, and you want to get the word out there, I think it's a, I think, you know, we're doing this podcast is like a, it's good for crutch, but I, I also think it's, it's also got the added benefit. It's just good for the community and it, and it, I think it builds community when you, when people step up and they explain a little bit about themselves and then that, that disseminates out there, it forms connections that, you know, I guess at first they're, like you'd said, they're kind of one-way connections, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And if you hear something on a podcast that really piques your interest, well, you might just reach out and, and, and form that two-way connection and, and then, and that's how that community builds. And I think that's the one of, I think that would be one of the most important things for what frame builders are doing, especially folks uh, like myself, like I'm very much the member of the, I think one of your guests called it the Tin Shack Alliance. <laughs> yeah, that's Tom Lamarch, yeah. I'm, I'm putting out a lot with a little, like a, a small space, you yep. know, uh, but but it, but again, it's, it's with the benefit of the community um, that's behind it in the community effort, like Spencer and Curtis and Chris and all these folks that, you know, that are, you know, Rob guys that, you know, folks that really helped me out, but it all came from that community and from those connections. And I think our goal locally is just to, there's a lot of people here that just because, just because like, you know, I play the grass court by, by polo and then now frame building, I get, I've, I've met so many people in the community. A lot of them have never heard of each other. And some folks have heard of this person, but not that person. And, you know, and, and really when it boils down to it, just about everybody has an awesome story to tell. So if you can start pulling some of those things together into place. Anyways, yeah, it was great advice. And that's, uh, that's, that's something we're pursuing. And, and uh, yeah, local legends and legendary locales. Look for it on, oh, crap, I forgot already. That's okay. <laughs> I can, anchor.fm, on anchor.fm. On yeah. I consume your content on Spotify. So. Well, and yeah, the beautiful thing about anchor.fm is that it puts it pretty much everywhere. So I used to say, you know, like, oh, and the new episode is this and like, go to my webpage and you can download it or it's on Apple. And those are like the only places. But now I just say, get it wherever you get your podcasts. And when I share it to Instagram, I just one of the like, I'll do a post about my guests when I release a new episode. I'll, there'll be because of Instagram, there'll be 10 images and I'll just pick 10 in images that have to do with the bikes that you're building. And maybe one is like a picture of you and your face. So they have a face, but then the rest of it is probably just pictures of, you know, your bikes and the shop and things we talked about, whatever. And then, but the second in the series of 10 images, the second image will be the square format podcast logo that I have for the shut up and build bikes podcast. And when they know the name of the show and they know that they can get it wherever they get their podcasts, then all they got to do is go to their podcast app and search it and they found it. So that's the beauty of it is that <laughs> that's the beauty of anchor.fm is that nobody needs to know that it's anchor.fm. <laughs> well, it, it, it's been working good. And I can say from, from my perspective, I mean, especially with some of the people you've had on this podcast, like to be invited on here, 
it's an honor. It, it was an honor. And when you asked me, I, I, I did feel honored and, and I do now. So thank you. Um, you know, like there's some, some pretty serious individuals that I've listened to on this podcast and I can, I can give you that feedback that, you know, I, in back of my mind, I thought, man, that should be awesome to be on that someday. I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought that'd be in the future, you know? Well, like, yeah. Uh, I, and I gotta say, um, I can understand how it would feel that way just because like, you know, for instance, I got to be a guest on my favorite podcast twice, the Within Tolerance podcast about machining and like, yeah, it's, it's just kind of an honor to be on, to get to chit chat about what you've been working on and your own story and to be part of the show that you like. So I know how that feels, but also I got to apologize if there's anybody out there who would love to be on the show and I've never asked you or something like there's, there's just so, so, so many people that I could have on the show and I, uh, it's just hard to make time for this. So I'll be sporadically, I'll think like, I really need to do a podcast. And then I'll just be like, someone will be front of mind for some reason. Like I just had a conversation with them or something. And then I say, yeah, I'll just ask them. And typically I usually just ask people that I already have some sort of relationship with because you know, like somebody who's a customer or somebody that I DM with or something, just because it just seems like it'd be a lot easier to approach them about being a guest if they already know who the hell I am and all that stuff. Whereas like if I need to cold call Scott Nickel who owned Ibis or something, I've never met that guy. Like maybe he would be on the show, but like, I don't know the freaking guy, you know, like, how's that going to go? This, this is way easier to just ask somebody that I already know. So anyway, it's, I feel like it's a little bit, um, the representation on the show is biased toward people that like are in communication with me on a regular basis. And I would, I would love if I had the time and the energy and the resources to like actually, you know, research all these different people and like reach out and, you know, prep for all these shows, but that would take a lot more time and energy. So I usually end up just interviewing people that I already know and that I'm already talking to and people who tend to be my customers a lot of times. Yeah. Well, I, I, I definitely am your customer. I I have all (laughs) over thing. Except the hat, it won't fit my huge head. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah, we got to get some more soft goods out there. Yeah, yeah, get some, get some, get some shirts and stuff, riding jerseys, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I've sure been happy with it. And uh, like the bender, that was a game changer um, for sure. That was a game changer because like you had even in your promo promo materials for that piece, you were you were. Um, something that really keyed with me was like control your own process and have, and, and because and I'm dealing with like these seed states that I hate, like no offense to seed state manufacturers, if you're listening, but there's just not a lot of options. Yeah. And, um, and they're all about the same thickness and they're all about the same bend. And, you know, you can get into weird BMX ones and fat bike ones and stuff like that. But, but having like your bender and a five eighths die, then the world just opens up especially with the indexing piece on there. So that, you know, I could, I, and I looked like, uh, last night I was out riding with a, a bunch of friends. A couple of them had my nartails and riding behind one of the fellas and just looking at that double bend on the seat stays, it just looks so nice. And <laughs> that's, that's that bender. I, I don't think I would have been able to pull that off otherwise because, uh, the big benders that are out there on the market, like for building roll cages and stuff, it's just too much. You couldn't, you wouldn't have that finesse to do it. Yeah you know, the smaller stuff. So, you know, the thing about a tool is that like the right tool for the job makes something feel just as easy as it should be. 
and I haven't had to use any other benders in a long time, so it's easy enough for me to forget. But I, I do remember, if I think back, um, because I was such a cheapskate and I never had the right stuff, you know, the first bikes I built, if they had bent seat stays, that was stuff that was bent, you know, previous to me buying it. It was an S-Bend pair of Nova seat stays or something. You were stuck with those options. And, and then I wanted to bend some stuff, and, you know, I tried I tried hacking it with simple benders, and, well... Seat stays and chain stays and stuff, they're nearly impossible to bend smooth, ripple free, you know, um, mirror image match to each other to put the bends where you want it. It's, it's nearly impossible to do that without a pretty nice bender. And even if you can pull it off tediously, it's then quite a bit harder to actually have an efficient, reliable process. But, you know, the tool that I made. I think does a pretty good job because you know where your bend starts and you know the radius and you can you can match them and the tube doesn't draw in while you're bending and you can get repeatability. So like you and when I've tried to demonstrate this in YouTube videos and when I built with them, it's like you can nail it to the print the first time without too much trouble if you just work to the numbers and uh, it's it's pretty remarkable that you can do that uh, compared to like a lot of other benders are more like a guess and check method or you know, see what you get method. <laughs> or I know like uh, years ago, I saw somebody had a method where they just took an old bicycle rim and they nailed it to their woodwork bench and then they would bend tubes around that. And it was kind of producing a nice looking bend, but like it was nearly impossible to get any repeatability and symmetry and all that. Oh yeah, completely. And the way, yeah. And you want to encapsulate it. And as you, you know, pull that die over top of it. And- yep. It does a great, it does a great job. And I like it in the past when I was building roll cages and tube chassis and so on, I had a really nice bender, but it was not for, it was not for 035 wall tubing or, yeah. or, or, or lighter. Yeah. And people ask me all the time, they say, why don't you sell your bender to other industries? And I'm like, it's really a bicycle bender. Like you can do a little bit of other stuff, but in any other application, you're oftentimes you're going to need to be able to bend a 90 and mine can't bend close to a 90 and you're going to need to be able to bend thicker, heavier stuff and you're going to need more muscle and you're going to want the dies to be made out of steel. It's just not really a bender for general purpose fabrication. But when it comes to bending bicycle stuff, there, there's a couple things it can't do. It can't do the top of a unicron fork blade or, you know, a couple other things, but it can, it can do most things and where it can do it, it usually does it, I think quite beautifully. Yeah, it's a good piece. It's a really good piece. Anyway, so after the promotional segment of the show, here, uh, <laughs> so the the last I thing paid anything to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think the last thing that I had on the list here um, yeah. that I that I can think of, and it unless you have something to talk about, was uh, uh, Ben Six on Instagram said we should talk about riding in denim, <laughs> which is apparently something that you're known for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, who the heck is Ben? This is someone I know. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. That, that's, you also like, said to talk about the 36er, but I think we covered that a little bit. But if there's anything more you yeah. wanted to say about that. Well, I mean, I like to ride the 36er while riding in denim. So well, it's that, the I, Canadian tuxedo. I mean, so when you go to Philadelphia <laughs> and you order a Philly cheesesteak, you just call it a cheesesteak. And if you call it a Philly cheesesteak, they know you're from out of town. So now when you're in Canada and you're wearing all denim, is that just called a, is that just called a tuxedo in Canada? And, and if, if you call it a Canadian tuxedo, that's how people know that you're an out of towner. Is that how that works? 
it's actually called an Alberta business suit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to take a tiny tangent here, and, and yep. I think you find this pretty humorous. But um, you know, like I said, I'm older. I'm a little older than you. I'm, I'm probably not up on the, the coolest. You know, the cool what the cool kids are doing. Like I'm, you know, like I think I'm cool, but I'm probably not. Um, <laughs> however, a friend of mine, a friend of mine was like he, he wears denim more than I do, and I, I was teasing him about this last year. And he said, "Well, look, I'm in this thing called the Indigo Invitational. It's a, it's a, it's a fading contest. Like, what the hell is that? So you basically you buy a set of uh, raw denim jeans and you submit them, and there's a contest. And whoever can come up with the like the best fade in one year wins. Oh, nice. I, uh, I got talked into that, and man, the first month was hell. Like, you can't bend." <laughs> <laughs> if you drop something on the floor, you got to take, you got to basically, you got to bend over with one knee because these things are like, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's wearing it's some kind of like a medical um, device. You can't, you can't move properly. But as time goes on, I mean, I'm into month two now. I'm wearing them right now, of course, because if you don't wear them every day, you're never going to stand a chance at the grand prize. Yeah. So, and and they're terrible. They're terrible for any kind of cycling where um, you're on a bike where you're kind of leaned forward, like my gravel bike or road bike. They're they're horrible. They almost act like a set of drum brakes on your thighs. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well, every time you go to move your leg, that that all that surface area on your big cyclist leg is basically having to overcome the friction of that can- the, the the cotton fabric, and, uh-huh. and it's horrible. all your leg hair is going to be gone, of course. Uh, which maybe that's good for some people, but, but uh, it's, it's like a real, like it's sucking so many Watts. It's, you know, it's probably sucking a hundred Watts. So, but if you're on a bike with lots of stack, like a clunker or, um, you know, like, or my 36 or is, is fits me tremendously well, thanks to Walt. Um, then then you can do it. And, but actually the, the jeans I wear mountain biking aren't even jeans. They're, uh, they're like a, I can't believe I'm going to say this. They're like a jegging. Oh wow! Like That's... a legging, you know, like they're they're so stretchy that you could probably put a grapefruit in each back pocket and walk around, and, and they wouldn't fall out. Wow! Not that I'd recommend that, of course. I I don't even like grapefruit, but I'm I'm just saying they're super stretchy. They look like jeans, but they're kind of not really jeans. They're they're probably half of the fabric synthetic, so they're super stretchy. <laughs> That's awesome. Is, you must have, I don't know if you have this brand in the States. It's DU slash ER, Doer. I don't think so. I, don't, I haven't seen it. It's really, really stretchy jeans for, for men and women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Riding in denim. There you go. It's, uh, you know, and I think it's just, I think it's good. It's If you crash, you got protection. Um, yeah. You, know, I- you can go. You don't look like that. You're not that guy wearing like uh, like shorts, and then your chamois is like poking down under your shorts, and then your socks are trying to reach up. Like that's you look like a circus clown. But if you're wearing a nice set of jeans, you know now you can hang out and you can you're cool. Yeah, I uh, a couple of years ago I kind of gave up on the uh, the the actual riding kit for most riding. You know, if I'm riding a little bit more, then I definitely get the chamois and the the clippy shoes and all that stuff. But I, most of the riding I do anymore, it's like, I'm not really out long enough. Cause that was kind of, I had my starting point was more like roadie stuff. So, you know, I, I realized pretty early on that like, man, a chamois feels pretty good compared to like riding in 
street clothes and stuff. But uh, I don't know. It just got to where I wasn't doing as many like all day rides and stuff. And so uh, it's pretty nice to just actually just wear street clothes if you can get away with it. And so in the warm months of the year, just wearing a pair of jorts and a t-shirt and it's pretty nice. It, I feel like it. it's part of the spirit of just not taking it too serious. <laughs> oh man. I like mountain biking and jorts is the, you know, it's the way. Yeah. You got all that crash protection and style mixed in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I think I, I think just uh, like I talked about what happened in 2016, I went through cancer scare and it was honestly, it was a good thing because it made me take myself a lot less seriously. And, um, and maybe that's part of it. I just, I have very few F's left to give. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I just do me now. I honestly, I, I don't worry too much about what other people are doing and what they might think. And like, you know, even with the bikes, I just, I just want to, just want to do what I like and what makes me happy. So yeah, of course denim's part of that. Throw a jean jacket on there too. That's, but then cut the, you got to cut the sleeves off. That's oh man, yeah, that's a good one. I got a pretty good denim jacket, but it's it's got the sleeves. So I think I need to I need to keep the sleeves on that for the cool weather. I need to go jean shop, go go denim shopping. Maybe I can get Uncle Crutch to take me denim shopping. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Crutch. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am an uncle many <laughs> a few times over. Nice, nice, <laughs> but. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I'd recommend raw denim. That's that's the answer. It's really uncomfortable at first, but then it gets. <laughs> I don't know. The, you're making you're making the case for the jeggings. Oh no, those are good. Yeah, doers. Uh, Maybe the je- jegging jorts could be good. You can keep your your jorts style without uh without sacrificing. Well, I've got those. Yeah, that's it. All right, <laughs> I think I found it. Riding, one more thing. They make them for riding. So the seam splits in the thigh into a Y shape. So in the crotch, there's no seam. That's awesome. Super comfortable for a bike seat. Yeah. Thanks. I really, really appreciate it. And it's a nice little humorous twist at the end there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for being on the show and it's awesome to hear your story and get to know you better. I feel that way at the end of every podcast is that I, uh, generally most of my guests, I kind of know who they are and I have some rapport. And by the end, I know them a whole lot better and it's awesome. It's like a real blessing that I get to like as, as something that's actually kind of beneficial to my job. I get to just get to know people like what a cool thing for me. So thanks for being on the show and, uh, and thanks for being an awesome customer. And I can't, can't wait to see what you do uh, with, you know, Krachowski custom bikes in the coming years. Thank you so much, Joe. Have a great night. Bye.